Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. morning to you. I had to think about what day of the week it was. Yep. Welcome back to All Marine Radio. To me, more than, more than anybody else. That's right. Yeah, so welcome back. Good to be good to be home. Always fun to travel and meet people and do what I do, but as Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz says, there's no place like home, right? And Dorothy wasn't lying, so so it's good to be home. Yep. I got home Saturday at about noon. Yep. Flew back from North Carolina. Had to go back to the gate in Atlanta. Somebody wouldn't wear their mask. Yeah, no kidding. So we all get on the plane. And you can imagine nonstop flight from Atlanta on Saturday morning to Southern California. Things packed. I would assume a lot of people, a lot of college students going home. There were a lot of people coming out here for vacation, I think. So I can hear this. I don't know. I shoot my four foot eleven Asian woman. She's a flight attendant. She's in this guy's shit. And, and you know, I hear kind of Ray's voice, but I, I didn't really pay any attention. I didn't, they didn't sound heated. And uh, then I heard her say, I will ask you one more time. Will you put your mask on? And with that, he, I don't know what he said. I couldn't hear what he said, but she grabs the phone. We're taxing to the runway. We're, we're almost to the runway to take off. And she grabs the phone and says, we need to go back to the gate. And we turn around and go back to the gate. Ugh. So that's what. 
I don't know how long it took, close to an hour for the whole event to un- to unfold. And then, uh, so then we came home. Yep. And uh, came home and uh, fell asleep. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. That's what I did. So I fell asleep um, and then woke up and cleaned up, unpacked. And, um, yeah, unpacked, straightened some stuff out, and then fell asleep for most of the rest of the day. Got up, ate, went back to sleep. So, um, and then yesterday had some yard work to do. They put up a fence just before I left, so I had to put up temporary fencing to keep the canine units from running away. So took that down. Uh, did some arts and crafts stuff to hang a ladder, you know, just your basic homeowner type of stuff. So I did that and uh, got my studio back to where it needs to be. Did a little cleaning, did a little laundry, uh, watched the 49er game, made me happy. 49ers won, which makes me happy. Um, but they're just a so-so team. So we have no grand expectations, just so everybody knows. Our quarterback on any given day, he's Sybil. He can suck, and then he can be good. Why he's either, nobody can understand that. It's, it's a miracle. You look at it, it's a miracle. So watch that. And then my daughters came over. Um, well, Colleen lives here, but Catherine came over, and we had my birthday dinner. That's right. So uh, my birthday while I was gone. So my daughter, being the wonderful girls that they are, said, we need to have dinner on Sunday. And I said, that's okay. Do you want a cake or would you like to make a cherry pie? I said, I'll make a cherry pie. I'm not satisfied with my cherry pie, though. I'm, I'm, I'm irritated with it. It's a little bit too tart. And I don't know what I'm doing wrong because I'm following the recipe and I thought I was good, but I'm not so sure. I think it's the amount of cherries that I'm putting into the pie. I think that's it. And there's a reason for that. Because, you know, when the, the cherries, even when you drain them, they carry a little bit of juice in them. So if you put too many cherries in it, that residual juice that sits inside the cherry, which is kind of tart, I think it imbalances the recipe. I'm not sure, though. I'm not sure. So I'm struggling with that. So I make the cherry pie. We have salmon, asparagus, a little salad. And, um, and I will give you a little recommendation. Um, years ago, uh, partly because my younger sister used to do it, Susan, she used to make me cards. And they were always funny and fun. And so I used to, that's what I like my kids to do is make me a card. And I have them from forever. And so um, my daughters both made me cards for my birthday, which I loved. And I would tell you, you work, uh, let's see, I would tell you, you work your entire lifetime to read the things that I read in those cards last time. It was an awesome birthday. I got a little wallet with my initials on it. Actually, not my initials. It says there. It says MAC on it. And very nice wallet. Um, so thank you to all of my kids for that. And um, 
Yeah, it was just a it was a wonderful birthday spent with my my lovely two daughters. So did that, and uh, and today you're going to hear a special edition of the Mensa Brothers. I mean, I wasn't around all last week, so I thought, well, everybody's missed those fools. So why don't we uh, why don't we bring them on? So I do. And Will had gone to the Army Navy game. So, which was a great game. Uh, if you love the pageantry, like I have since I was a kid, um, yeah, we talk about that. Uh, and Tim grew up in Annapolis. You know, his dad was stationed at the Naval Academy for a while, and so Tim grew up. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Will was at the game and went to the Naval Academy. Tim grew up, and then I think Jeff and I are a little bit alike in that we always. You know, we watched it, you know, to see the march on and, you know, this pageantry of the American military back in the day where there was no YouTube, right? You couldn't watch this kind of stuff. So anyway, talk about that. Um, and I can't remember what else we talked about. Oh, Tim talks about, Tim's heard some stuff out of Afghanistan that Afghan is getting, Afghanistan's getting more violent with along tribal lines. So Tim will kind of give us a little update on that. We talk about that. And uh, and then towards the end, we do a little bit of Guadalcanal trivia. Yeah. And so interesting stuff. So we have a little bit of an interesting uh, liberal arts discussion on that. So without further ado, the United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. Good morning to you. <laughs> This is dedicated to the Marines and sailors that I spent last week with. Uh, their leadership in Combat Logistics 7, I'm sorry, Combat Logistics 27, a uh, part of Marine Logistics, 2nd Marine Logistics Group out of uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And so just an awesome week with them um, presenting post-traumatic winning. So thank you very much. For the invitation, uh, as I said repeatedly, if I can do anything to help, don't hesitate. You know how to get a hold of me. This is dedicated to you.
you're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> <clears throat> but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. Time for us to check the new the weather on a we'll check the news here in a minute, briefly briefly and then you'll hear the mensas uh currently in quantico it is sunny and 44 chilly on the east coast sunny and 54 down the down the coast at marine corps air station cherry point home and second marine airway sunny and 39 at 29 palms whoa coldest temperature of the year pendleton clouds at 50 camp smith in hawaii dark cloudy and 70 okinawa shima Dark cloudy, 63, Ooh, cold. In Manila, dark cloudy, 79, that's cold. Darwin, where it's never cold, dark cloudy, 85. Currently at the home of All Marine Radio, gale warning in effect. There's four warnings here in Southern California. Cloudy and 52, so you know we got to check out the warnings, right? Of course. Uh, let's see, gale warning in effect. Wind advisory, small craft advisory, and a marine weather statement. So it's going to be windy here in Southern California today. So got that going for you. Um, let's see. Currently, let's check the headlines of Stars and Stripes. There's some interesting headlines of Stars and Stripes. Um, <clears throat> top news headlines. U.S., North Korea, China agree in principle on a formal end to the Korean War. So says South Korea's president. South Korea's president also announced that he would not opt into the diplomatic boycott that Japan, China, I mean, Japan, the United States, Australia, and other countries uh, will execute during the Olympics. Yeah. Well water contamination in Hawaii came from a jet fuel leak last month, that according from, to your United States Navy. Uh, the Navy will hold a hearing for the sailor accused of lighting the USS Bonhomme Richard on fire here shortly and uh navy beats army yeah in a, a great football game so those are news headlines from stars and stripes top headline in the wall street journal is hospitals drop staff vaccine mandate amid labor crunch and a federal judge temporarily halting the biden administration mandate for healthcare workers to get shots okay so that is our top headline, and stories continue to come out of Kentucky 
where the death toll currently sits at 64 officially. So <clears throat> top stories in Wall Street Journal. New York Times top, top story is as the U.S. nears 800,000 virus deaths, one of every 100 older Americans has perished. That's the top story in New York Times today. USNI top story is the USS Connecticut pulls into San Diego after a surface transit from Guam. So uh, the Connecticut was uh, very, very, uh, has been in the news for running into something underground and underwater in the South China Sea. It's in San Diego now. Top stories, Marine Corps Times. Toxic water consumes daily lives of many Hawaiian military families with no end in sight. That is in the news. There was also a board of inquiry held last week. So headline, fate of Marine Battalion commander during tragic 2020 sinking is on the line. So the battalion commander of 3rd AAV Battalion, Amtrak Battalion, right? Assault Amphibian Vehicle Battalion. He, the guy who was in charge of the battalion during all the preparation, gave up the battalion, gave up the battalion about 10 days prior to the sinking of that Amtrak that killed nine, eight Marines and a sailor. He is now undergoing a board of inquiry. So, um, so that in the news. Headline from last week. General Berger, Commandant of the Marine Corps, quote, I'll accept a smaller Marine Corps to make light amphib amphibs happen. And we haven't talked about it yet, but um, some significant blowback publicly last week um, to the Commandant. And so we'll talk about that with the Mensa brothers here this week, later. Uh, top five stories in early bird. Uh, number one, anti-ISIS coalition shifts focus to Africa as Iraq combat mission ceases. Second headline, leaked docs reveal Army CID reform plan and its need for a culture shift. Whatever. Uh, civilian deaths mount as secret U.S. unit pounded Isla the Islamic State. That comes from the New York Times. Army to install water filter systems at affected military housing areas. So that is according to Hawaii Public Radio. And toxic water consumes daily lives. We just talked about that. Overseas operations, refugee aid groups in Washington region overwhelmed by Afghan caseloads. Number two, curious case of a map and a disappearing Taiwan minister at the U.S. Democracy Summit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, despite appeals from Ukraine, Biden administration holds back additional military aid to Kiev amid a diplomatic push that includes Vladimir Putin. U.S. small arms and ammunition arrive in the, U in the Ukraine as the Pentagon details troops to train the country's military. So all of that. So those are, that's a look at your news headlines today. And without any further ado, my friends, right now, the Mensa Brothers. I know it's been a long time because I've had people come up to me and say, like, what, 
what happened to the Mensa brothers? And my response was, you didn't hear? And they said, what? I said, they're dead. And they were like, they, they all died? They all died? Yeah, they were all executed. Um, and then they knew it was a joke. But joining me are my friends. And they'll come back on Thursday. But I hadn't talked to them in a while. And people ask about them. So I thought I would uh, bring them back. Joining me from an airport in Philadelphia, Will C. Will, how are you? Just happy to be here. I can't tell you how much. <laughs> The city of brotherly love. I didn't know it was going to be like that this morning, but okay. And joining me from Mac, the McAllen-Edinburgh corridor of Texas, Tim Lynch. Tim, how are you? Yeah, doing just fine, Mac. Beautiful day down here in South Texas. What makes it beautiful? Not a cloud in the sky. It's cool, like 69 degrees, sunny. Ah, it's just beautiful. Gotcha. And it's a tropical Texas, so we've got all the vegetation and birds and stuff. That's beautiful. Yeah. No wonder it's no wonder you said it's beautiful. And joining yeah. me from a hotel room in San Clemente, if I'm not mistaken, Jeff Kenny. Jeffrey, how are you? Very good, thank you. Well, and he's uncharacteristically polite too. Who knew that was coming? Um, <laughs> well, but, my wife is here. I'm in a small uh, hotel room. Oh, so he doesn't want to get right, hit. <laughs> right next to Big Helens. He doesn't. Big Helens and Carl's Jr. So. It's a good place. Well, if you don't know where that is, don't worry about it. But if you do know where that <laughs> is, that's a that's a landmark for many Marines crawling out of Big Helens to go get some fast food down the street. <clears throat> um, let's talk about the Army Navy game uh, first. Uh, did you watch it growing up? I as a kid because we didn't have YouTube and stuff like that to see the cadets and the midshipmen march on and and the little pageantry compared to what they have on TV and all that now, uh, to me, was something as a little kid I never I never missed. I thought it was, you know, I'd watch the Army-Navy game and all that, so I was a huge fan of it. And I was traveling yesterday from uh, from Jacksonville, North Carolina, where I'd been last week speaking, and then uh, back home. Oh, listen to this. Some fucking dick refuses to wear his mask after we pull a gate and we're away from the gate and we're taxiing to take off in Atlanta. Oh no. Oh no. And I hear this four foot nine inch flight attendant who just happens to be Vietnamese go gangster on him. All right. And this dude's probably six foot two. I asked you one time, will you wear your mask? And I didn't even know what the response says. She grabs the phone. She says, we have to go back to the gate. Air marshals. Come on. Exactly. So anyway, Four foot nine inch took no shit from anybody. So I come home yesterday and uh, and I watched the game starting on the plane. And I mean, the pregame goes for like four hours, I think. And so much more than it used to be. But but Will's there. But Will, did you watch the game growing up? Were you a fan of all of that? Or just since you went to the Naval Academy? You know, I think I used to watch the game. But I'm not sure I understood that it was West Point and the Naval Academy until I was, you know, like 17. I thought it was like the Army and the Navy playing football. So uh, I think I used to watch it. It wasn't like the thing that I waited for every year. But I know I watched it some. Yeah. What a loser. Tim, you grew up yeah. in a you grew up in a military house. Did you was it a big deal to you? Did you watch it growing up or? 
Oh yeah. Well, when when I was in elementary school, I lived in Annapolis, and I I used to oh, sell programs right. at Navy Navy games, and I would <laughs> and the and the vendor pass and the sideline passes were the same color, same shape for every you know they're different per game, but every game they were the same. So for about three years, I would go down in the second half and stand on the sidelines. I I almost got my foot stepped on by a who was the guy from Pitt that won the Heisman. Oh, Tony, Dor- Tony Dorsett. Tony Dorsett, yeah. I saw Tony Dorsett break a 99-yard yeah. run there in Indianapolis. It was he, almost, yeah. he almost stepped yeah. on my foot. Yeah, I was sitting on the sideline. He came scampering right up. I'm like, wow. But, uh, but the Army-Navy game in Philadelphia, which when I was a kid, it was always played there, that was a big event for my family, of which children were not a part. My parents would disappear and that, that weekend generally meant I could watch the game on the TV and do whatever I wanted in an unsupervised manner. But, uh, yeah, my dad never took us to the game. It was because uh, they, they – they, but he went every year, every year. Wow. How about you, Jeff? Yeah. Did you watch that stuff growing up? Yeah, uh, we watched it a lot of times. My, my dad and his brothers were Navy guys during the Second World War, and they venerated both West Point and uh, the Naval Academy. You know, they thought, they thought both of them were the – Acme of, you know, efficiency and everything. And one time we were watching it, um, and they announced dedicated to a, the lonesome end or something like that. A guy, yeah. an army guy, got killed in Vietnam, and uh, but he had been a football player for the army team. He it was like sixty-eight or sixty-nine, I think. Yeah, you know, what? I remember that the lonesome yeah. end they used to call him. Right, they'd stick him out right. there and never throw it, or he was out there. Right. Wow. And like Roger Staubach, Roger Staubach is a Naval Academy guy. There's a couple others, you know. Yeah, you know what? Conspicuous in his absence yesterday was Roger Staubach. I, I found that kind of odd. They they did kind of this montage of different players that have been si- significant throughout the rivalry and, and watching games and talking about the significance of the game and then that particular clip, and you could see him get emotional. Roger Staubach, yeah. nowhere to be found. I thought that was kind of odd. but You know, yeah. and he's uh, he is... He's venerated at the Naval Academy and by the football team. And and that may just be a very high-class act by Roger Staubach right. to allow some other people to have some spotlight because he's been at the game many times. And uh, he, he was at – he'd come to the Naval Academy once a year or so when I was there and, uh, you know, universally lauded by everybody there. So I wouldn't doubt he's he, – I mean, he's getting pretty old. You know, he lives out yeah. in Texas somewhere. He may be health issue, or that may just be high class. Roger Staubach who let someone else have some spotlight. Well, you know what? That's good to know because I thought, you know, I, why wouldn't they include him? And I thought maybe health or, or whatnot. But uh, no, you're right. Roger Roger Staubach always one of the class acts of uh, the National Football League when it wasn't when it wasn't very classy. But will you? First of all, it was a great game. Will, you were at the game. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I, uh, I've i been going um, pretty routinely since 2017 when I moved to Kansas. Uh, I didn't go very often when I was on active duty just because it was hard to get to. Uh, you know, for active duty, they'd try and get up there and get a ticket and stay and blah, blah, blah. Then I was down in Florida. I used to, uh, we did a big Toys for Tots thing that happened to be on this Saturday every year. So I never got to go. So I, since I've been in Kansas, I've gone every year. I got a really good buddy of mine, classmate, who teaches at uh, Lawrenceville Prep School. 
which is, you know, halfway between Newark and Philadelphia. And so I go stay with him and my son lives in Philadelphia now. So for the last few years, we've been able to go to the game last year, you know, they, they actually held it up at West Point, didn't allow any fans. Uh, so this year it was up in the Meadowlands. So, uh, we had not been in time to see any of the march on and all of that kind of stuff for a while. And, uh, so we got up there really early, uh, midshipmen marched on at 1210 for a 315 kickoff, I think. So we were there for the march on. They did, they usually have parachute jumpers. They didn't do it because the weather was, the ceiling was like a thousand feet. Uh, did the flyovers. Uh, conspicuous in his absence was the commander-in-chief. Um, yeah, it w- I, I, I didn't see anything said about that. Where the where the hell was he? Did he forget? Yeah, I mean, this was, it was held in New Jersey this year, in theory, to sort of commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Right. And, uh, you know, the president's been there the last several years. Uh, and it's the presidents have been on and off with going to the game. Uh, I think Obama went once. I think Bush went once, maybe twice. Uh, it's not like they go every year, but President Trump basically went every year. And, uh, you know, one of the things they do is the, the when the president goes, well, then the chairman's got to go and the secdef's got to go. And so they sit on one sideline and then at halftime they do what they call prisoner exchange and uh, send the president over to the other sideline and switch sides, and it's sort of a big deal. Um, but it was, uh, you know, just it's interesting to me that neither the president or the vice president came when it was uh, 9-11 commemoration, uh, you know. So uh, it, it actually makes it easier for everyone in the stands because getting in and out of the game is a pain in the ass for the president's here. Um but it was, uh, yeah, it, it was an absolutely great event. Uh, a couple of years ago, they played and it snowed and it got about six inches of, of accumulation while during the game. And I remember fourth quarter, Navy's down a couple of points. They got the ball, five and a half minutes left. The snow is coming down in absolute, just straight down, huge snowflakes. And I said, it's, it's like the greatest atmosphere you could be in. And yesterday was very reminiscent of that, you know. Uh, Navy uh, looks a little bit overmatched in the first half. They come back, they get ahead, uh, they drive the ball, kick a field goal. They're up four. Army gets the ball with about five and a half minutes left. Uh, Stadium looks sold out, and nobody's left early. Everyone's in the stadium. Um, Yeah, it's a great game. It's a great atmosphere. Uh, So uh, one of the better ones. Uh, that I've been to, so yeah, it was, it's great. I, I, for me, I'm not a you know I don't. You guys may differ. I don't think I go out and wave the Naval Academy flag like look at me, but I got to tell you, it's one day when you're there and see all the different alumni from both sides. It's like it's a big deal to be a part of it. I, I got to tell you, it's a big deal, and I, I really like it. Timmy, any thought? Any thoughts on the game yesterday? No, I, I enjoyed watching it tremendously. Um, 
I, I will give one compliment to Army, and that was their uniforms look cool. I like those. As I was watching it, I was watching as they, you know, they 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 frame uh, shots of the players and you frame shots of the midshipmen and the cadets and whatnot. It's such a it, it has the potential for such a positive message of of uh, of sending to the American people about what what delineates your military professional class from from the rest of the citizenry, and. But I know that at the Naval Academy, the football team is the lead agency with their equity and inclusion drives and all this other kind of stuff. And I just uh, it's 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 wasted because you 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 see the potential in those kids. You see how squared away they look, how they look completely different than any other college football team you're going to you're going to observe, which by making that observation is problematic in a lot of circles in and of itself. But but what the people are seeing is that that's that's the old old Americans I know those are the guys with the short hair and the good ethics that are going to stand up for us. But the, we know that the the academies are according to Victor Davis Hanson the most progressive of institutions he's ever taught at. We know that the, at at the Army this not tolerating lying cheating and stealing that's now got an asterisk next to it, which in my mind it, it for me detracts from what would be a wholesome spectacle of, a, of, 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 the, of the, the best that the American military has to offer. And I just, it's just a tragedy to me. Got it, got it. As somebody who grew up, lived there for a while too. Yeah, I grew up, I grew up with, those, with those guys. I never wanted to go to the academy. If there's one time I want to be an academy grad, it would be to sit in that stand as part of that football extravaganza like Will does, because that's a special thing that, that will never be availed to us. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame because of the potential of the academy, and I never really got to be anti-academy until we started uh, with Major Allen. When Major Allen came to us directly from there, and uh, it was it was his comments that uh, that alerted me to a, a problem with the with the institution. Not alone, let alone the performance of the midshipmen when they're compared to ROTC and OCS uh, graduates at TBS. And that was a problem when we were teaching. I imagine it's it's grown, but but. You know, but what a hell of a game! Yeah. What a great visual! It just, it just, if you got, if you got knowledge about what's going on, it's, 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 it's bittersweet right. to watch. It's disturbing. You know, I, I wrote a paper about the Naval Academy. I want to say when I was in fourth or fifth grade. And <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it, and that is back in the day when you had to write um, the institution, and they would send you a packet of pamphlets and shit, and they did. And I write this paper on it. Is it, is it the Severn River? How do you say that? Severn. 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 Severn River, yeah. And so, but it never occurred to me that I could go there. <laughs> it never even crossed my mind that I had any, that I might attend that. I mean, oddly. Or it might, might attend it and excel. Well, yeah, or, yeah. I imagine it would have. It never even entered my mind that that would be an option for me. So, which is kind of interesting because like Will says, I didn't really didn't get on my radar until I was a teenager. Well, it was on my radar when I was a little kid. Never occurs to me. Jeff, did you, hey, did, well, you, did you watch the game and any thoughts on it? No, I didn't. I was traveling. Uh, but, uh, I feel a lot of way, the way Timmy feels about it. And also, you know, Will gave a good rundown of the, of the thing. But uh, I have to tell you, my parents, they desperately wanted me to go to either the Naval Academy or West Point. And they thought it was a possibility because this guy from my mom's neighborhood named Johnny Papandrea was a congressman, one of the congressmen from Connecticut then, I think. Mm. Or he was running or 
something. So they thought saw that as an end. I'm like, this is when I was like eight or nine. I'm like, uh, I, like you, I didn't really want to go. I didn't think it was practical to even think about it. You know, I thought those guys were, you know, uh, they were like uh, anointed. You know? <laughs> yeah, really you know a, what I thought was, I thought they were really really smart guys. Yep. Yeah. And then I met them, and I'm like. Fuck, I could have fucking done that. Yeah, you know, when I went to the basic school, I was in the class with most of the Naval Academy guys. Oh. And uh, within uh, halfway through the, less than halfway through the, the curriculum, you couldn't tell the difference between, like, my roommates were one NRTC guy, one PLC guy, and one Naval Academy guy. And and not only do you have the Naval Academy, you had Air Force Academy. Like, Mel was in my class, Eric Mellinger. And uh, and uh, so they were all they were indistinguishable halfway through the baseball, in my opinion. You know? yeah. But uh, well, but not when you started. Well, no, that's what um, I remember talking to Major Allen about that, and that's the, my first introduction of his problems uh, with the institution and whatnot. Because I said, well, you know, sir, my perception was I would never be able to close the gap on those guys. Yeah, and he looked at me and he said, "That's exactly the way it should be, Mac, and that's exactly what they could do, but they choose not to do that, and it's why I have such great anxiety and and anger um, at the way the Naval Academy is run." And that that was that comment was my was the thing that lit that discussion off the first time I ever heard it. So. Yeah, yeah, circa 1992. Yeah, 1992. You know, interesting. Interesting, though. Um, during those years, and then when I graduated, uh, the Marine Corps was capped at 16 and two-thirds percent of the graduates. And in my year, uh, that meant 177 lieutenants in my class. And probably, mm -hmm. probably 25 of those guys only went in the Marine Corps because they were near the bottom of the class and they didn't want to be on a ship. Uh, you fast forward to after 9-11, and they lifted the cap, and the Marine Corps was taking 25% of each class. Wow. And so as, as sort of jacked up as the leadership there could be, the, the Naval, Navy leadership at the Naval Academy, the midshipmen were running to the sound of the guns. And it was when I was there, we did our service selection, basically whatever you're physically qualified for, you could do. And the only ones that had any pre-selection were uh, nuclear power and SEALs. And there was only three SEALs, so they did a competitive selection. But everyone else lined up in numerical order of rank, uh, class rank. And if the billet was open and you were physically qualified, you could take it. Uh, the Marine Corps started doing some pre-screening. So... You, you had to show a willingness, desire, do some extra work, and they were still getting 25% of the class. Knowing, I mean, think about it, 2003, 4, 5, 6, 7, you know, six months, go to basic school, go to MOS school, and you're going to the war two or three times. Right. And if you go in the Navy, you ain't going to the war ever. And they were getting 25%. So I, I, I wholeheartedly concur with that Major Allen about deficiencies and, and potential of that institution. That being said, the people that go there 
sort of voted with their feet, at least during the war years, in a lot of ways. No, so, with a, with, yeah. without a doubt, Will. You know, what's always interesting, too, is uh, I can remember General Neller. I don't know if he said it on my show or where I saw him say it, because, but it's a great source of pride for the Marine Corps that when you see the captains of Navy's football team and, and many of Navy's, you know, marquee sports teams, they go Marine. You know, yeah. and it's a, a it, it's not with a small amount of pride that Marine Corps says that. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, and James Webb's second book, James Webb's second book was a Sense of Honor, which is about the Naval Academy. And I was I was a sergeant, I think, when that came out, early early eighties or late seventies, and uh, it kind of like alerted me that th- there's issues going on, you know, at the Naval Academy, and uh, and so I think by the time uh, I went to the basic school. They had been exacerbated to what Will was talking about, you know, and what Major Allen, or then Major Allen, was talking about. Right, 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 right. Now I want to I want to kind of change gears a little bit, and um, and to me, um, you know, sent us all a little bit of a a report, um, and uh, and 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 I just just as a warning order to everybody. I think we maybe should roll the K- our ops intel thing. We might want to start looking at the U- at Ukraine. I always want to say the Ukraine at <laughs> Ukraine um, v Russia in maybe not to the the time we spent on you know the the Neo at the Kabul International Airport, but maybe on a weekly basis we could give a little bit of an ops intel update on that because that's pretty pretty uh important pretty interesting little event that's going on so i tease that and to give a warning order but timmy um you know sent us out a little blurb about afghanistan so tim why, why don't you share what you've heard with everybody and then i think you had a subsequent conversation with uh franz marty who tim introduced right. me to and was on the program uh does a lot of work in afghanistan and tell us a is franz still there and then, uh, and then follow your report, Tim, and then we'll talk about it. Sure. Yeah. Franz, Franz remains in Kabul. Uh, he's taken up resident at the Soviet embassy there in uh, Wazir Akbar Khan. So he's, he's in, in place. He's still reporting, although I haven't seen much. Uh, last time he was published in The Economist, I think, was October. I, I have yet to get any of my Afghans out of that goddamn country. I've got maybe three or four guys through the process to the point where they're ready to go to a thir- to another country to finish it. And so I'm in constant communication with these guys, not because I want to be, because they keep on you know, communicating with me, because there's not much I can do. What I was told was in, in and around Jalalabad, every night during the night, about 20 to 30 Taliban guys, mostly manning checkpoints, get gunned down by locals. Okay? So that was a pretty hefty number, and I know also that uh, um, ISIS and the Taliban are battling up there in the uh, in the northeastern part of, of Nangarhar province. So I, I found that to be interesting. So I, I went to my source, Franz Marty, and here's exactly what Franz just, just sent back not a few minutes before you called, Max. And he said uh, uh, the situation in Nangarhar, which is the province where Jalalabad is located, is indeed not good. Taliban Daesh, which is ISIS, and civilians alike get killed every day. Sometimes Daesh claims responsibility. Sometimes it's the Taliban. Sometimes that might be the Salafists. 
and Jeff would know who the Salafists are. This basically all the lowlanders in Nangarhar and in Kunar province. The Salafists that just had enough repression from the Taliban. It's often hard to make out the exact pep, uh, perpetrators. So, so that's that's what we know about what's going on on the ground in Nangarhar province. I don't know if that's true in the rest of the country, but it it points to a huge stability problem. Which. Which is, which is which is about not surprising at all, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I believe that one of the four of us predicted this. They, the Taliban don't have the ass to control these people because they are armed, and that's the big. That's that's still a case. And now we're we're seeing what I was hoping we would see in August. We're seeing play out in November. Got it. Yeah, I think I uh, I I got. I'm in touch with people who are in touch with. Uh, my, the uh, guy at Vatan, who we're trying to get out, he's a retired uh, general, you know, who retired right there in Kabul. And uh, and he, he was on the run for a while. And uh, we're trying to get him out through one of the northern countries because getting out, like, if you go through Nangahar, the, the most famous way to get out of out of uh, Afghanistan from Nangahar is the Khyber Pass, Torkham Gate, uh, which uh, is, of course, being hotly watched. But I have to tell you, Tim, um, your friend France Marty, you know, he, he's probably right. But I have to tell you, I don't really believe that most of these people are being killed by ISIS as much as I believe they're being killed by people who would, who would have in earlier times been known as the Northern Alliance, who are who are resent the fact. And you, you're right about the Salafists, about those people who live closer, you know, the, in the southern part of Nangahar and then the western or the eastern part of Kunar. Who are who really don't see the difference between Pakistan and Afghanistan? They just think of themselves as Pashtuns, mm-hmm. and uh, and they don't like the fact that they don't like the whole idea of being run by a government that's not right there. That's the that really is the story of Afghanistan since the beginning. I mean, people say you know they, they'll fight anybody. The truth is, they just don't like central control. They just yeah. like to run their own show, you know, and uh, and and. To trade one form of central control for another, they're going to do. They're doing to the folks right there now. Uh, the Taliban folks were running things that they did to us, and for the same reason, I think. Mm-hmm. Although the Taliban's a lot more heavy-handed than, uh, you know, than the Ghani or the the Karzai government. Uh, you know, I think that's what's partially going on, but it's it's a mystery, you know. Yeah, it's a it's very is is very cloudy for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, it's it's it it is it is, but it's also. It, it's Good. you know what, what Franz says has the ring of truth to it because it, it, it's being confirmed by my guys on the ground who are prone to exaggeration. Believe me, but yeah. Um, but but yeah, it, it it is. When you think about it, it's what you expect. What do you expect from Afghans? They're very easy to get along with when you're doing shit you that they want you to do. After that, it gets very difficult to get along with them. And uh, and the the Taliban's Taliban's. They're just another figurehead from the Pakistan government, just like Karzai was a figurehead from the U.S. government. The, right. the, the Afghan Afghans, they're not down with them. And we'll see how this plays out. But it's going to be a nightmare of a winter. That's for sure. I, I think all that fighting in the Korngal was because of taxes, because of taxing on that timber. Um, oh, yeah. No, no, there's no question nothing, about that. Nothing to do with Islam or any other stuff. You know? No, no. Remember, now, cars, they made it illegal to cut down old growth yeah. timber, but yeah. not illegal to sell it. Yeah. Because he could get a cut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
So that's Afghanistan is from, from, from the wrap up. And like I said, I'm still at no people out and I'm, and I'm beyond, beyond, I'm beyond depressed. This is just a nightmare. It just, it's a slow going nightmare. It's worse than Venezuela starving to death, which has taken like a decade apparently. Yeah. Got it. Will, any thoughts Before on you that? Get you know, I, uh, I'm trying to think of the last time I read something about Afghanistan. And it was it was a week or two after the Neo, maybe. You know, the news that I read, it just doesn't break squelch at all. Um, which I think the administration's pretty happy about. Um, so uh, it it's it's you know, it's not of an interest a personal interest to me. So I don't go looking for it. And so the sources that I have aren't reporting on it. And, and that's, I mean, that's, uh, that's of interest to note as well that we spent 20 odd years there and basically eh, that's it. Forget it. We moved on. Right. So, um, yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I was, uh, to me, it's not a surprise. I mean, you, you know how, as Jeff, as Jeff said, you know, when you when you change one system of centralized control, which they hate, for another one, it's you know, set your stopwatch to it. It's it's only a question of time. I just hope the United States and you know, in these negotiations that we re-entered into, for what I'm not really fucking sure. Other than it, are there people that we still want out? I hope. I mean, look, you won, right? We lost. You won. Good fucking luck. I hope the United States, you know, doesn't do anything stupid to prop up the Taliban. And yeah. you, you, you fought for it. You want it. Good fucking luck, right? Good luck. And so, uh, you want to dance with the devil? Go ahead. And so we'll see what happens. But uh, that's my fear: is the United States is going to do something to prop their, you know, again, the economy's falling apart. The currency issues they have in the country, the hard currency issue they have in the country, you know, it's it's not going to be good, and then it's only going to be a question of time till till they begin to fight again. So, uh, I, and again, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, and uh, it's a it's a sad failing of, of American, you know, intervention there that that this is what it came to, but it is what it is. So, um, I, I'm curious about thoughts on the on on Ukraine v Russia. Um, get out your crystal balls, Jeffrey. What do you do? give me your thoughts on Ukraine v. Russia? Well, I think um, Putin's going to continue to threaten, and um, I don't know, you know, what the prize would be for him to actually invade the Ukraine. Um, you know, he'll try and affect their politics. He'll have a, you know, he'll back up candidates that will run against the the guy who's in there now. But uh, I don't really see him making armed incursions unless he thinks uh you know in a um in an io kind of way that'll make him seem you know uh more formidable i i don't think he wants to actually go to war with the ukraine and i think you know that we should uh you know we should not get involved other than to send them you know weapon systems and shit like that we shouldn't uh you know, can, can you imagine if uh, we were having problems with Mexico, which we've had in our history, 
you know, and we invaded Mexico twice, or we fought them twice. And uh, if, if uh, I mean, one of the reasons we went into World War One is because the second time we went into Mexico, uh, it comes up that the Germans were actually trying to, um, you know, weigh in with the Mexican government, and uh, and that really pissed off uh, Woodrow Wilson. So I mean, so I would say this: you know, don't send people. Send them munitions, help them out as much as we can, and uh, you know, and call it good because uh, it's way over in their back, in their neck of the woods. It's just asking for a disaster to send people. That's how I look at it. All right, um, Timmy, your thoughts? Ukraine v. Russia. I think I think Putin will eat up a little bit more of Ukraine if he's feeling like he's got some significant pressure behind him. Um, for instance, with the Russian economy coming a little bit undone, uh, their energy sectors uh, starts having problems. If he starts having problems, I think he'll go after get more of Ukraine because it gets him a lot of respect from the Russian people who are all about reclaiming what they think is lost territory. I, I agree with Jeff. It's it's not worth us fighting over it. It's worth it's it's a worthy endeavor to give them the means to fight themselves. But quite frankly. If I was a Ukrainian, the last thing I'd want to hear is, uh, "I'm from the United States government, and I'm here to help you." That doesn't seem <laughs> that doesn't seem to exactly be a, a a good deal. So, the best thing we could do for Ukraine is keep our military the hell out of there, but give them the means to defend themselves. If we can, uh, if we can figure out how to do that, without spending three billion dollars on wasted, stupid, goofy CIA stuff. Oh, and that's the other thing. We can send the CIA director over there. He's been showing up everywhere lately. He shows up at Kabul before it falls. He's already warned Russia, so that means they're probably going to launch now. Uh, I, it's just, it's it's unfortunate, but I don't feel that we're in a position to help anybody with much of anything at the moment as far as foreign aggression goes, the, which is not good. The angel of death, right? Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, let's get the United yeah. States in here. That will go real well for us. Yeah, no, yeah, he's the, go- the ghost of Christmas to come. That's what that <laughs> <is>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Will, yeah. Will, I muted you. Unmute yourself. Give us your thoughts. Yeah, it's uh, Ukraine, from what I can tell, is an internal Russian politic issue for Putin. And um it, it's an issue internationally in that in theory we don't change borders through the use of force i'm not sure when that became an international rule but i i think it's one of those ones that people like uh to put out there uh of note you know there's not a a western european uh that's going to send their boutique militaries there to, to try and prevent that. Um, China doesn't give a shit about it, right? They went to Tibet, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, they're really unconcerned about changing borders by force that I can tell. And so you've got this uh, postmodern U.S. administration uh, going back to international norms of diplomacy after, uh, you know, the desert of the last four years administration and all those things and attempting to do, I'm not quite sure what, because is there anybody on earth 
that believes that the U.S. is going to put a red line out there and enforce it in Ukraine. Um, so I thought I read an article that an interpretation of the recent Biden-Putin um, Zoom call was that Boot, or, uh, Biden may have opened the door to increase Russian control over certain territory there. Um, but, uh, I don't know what we get out of this. I, I, I could see us getting some out of, something out of it if we had a true grand strategy that we were thoughtfully looking at and devoting significant effort resources across all the spectrums. But as a one-off, it, it seems like it's something that could get really crazy really fast mm-hmm. with a power that's got 10,000 nuclear weapons. And that just yeah. doesn't seem like a good idea to me. To answer your question, Liz Cheney thinks it's a good idea. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I, not in our strategic interest. I, you know, to me, it's interesting the posturing Europe will do. And I cannot tell you how happy I am that Angela Merkel is, is on her way. She's out the door, Yeah, you know, and and you, yeah. And and you hear the, the German prime minister actually saying things that like, don't sound very Germanic. He's actually standing up and saying, yeah, that that's not a good thing. That won't happen. Right. The Nord pipeline and, you know, and, and the president of Poland is uh very adamant about about you know if anything happens right about uh, you know and and then you saw i think latvia uh, lithuania all saying we want american forces here in the region to deter russian aggression we're sick and tired of this so it's pretty interesting and again the role europe plays in all of this the role nato plays in all of this right um i mean it's the same old same old you're right mac it's the same old uh you know, geographic or uh, you know, popular ethnic and and geographical conflicts. You know, it's just different forms of government, different names. Right. But yeah, I mean, the and again, Russians and, basically and the other, the hired other, the Cossacks. Yeah, the other great lesson is Ukraine and Poland. Yeah, the other great lesson for Europe is if you're weak, you are going to face these circumstances, right? If you were stronger yeah. and you looked at him and said, "Under no circumstances will we allow this." Then guess what? It would not happen. He would bluster and whatnot, and uh, and it wouldn't happen. So, uh, interesting. All right, uh, it, go ahead, Timothy. I was just I was just going to say the Ukraine's got a particularly tragic history, and I don't think many people have read. Okay, about you know what? I'm kind of irritated because last week I asked, "Do you guys say you Ukraine or the Ukraine?" And you've said the Ukraine, and so is Jeffrey. But last week you both denied that you say that. What would you like I, to? I think apolo- I, I think I would I you threw, like to apologize. I, th- I I wasn't calling no. it capital T <laughs> capital T H E Ukraine. I was saying the because it's just just an, that doesn't work either, does it? All right, I apologize. <laughs> Fuck, you caught me. Yeah, that doesn't work that way either. No, I was trying to come with prepositional it rolls out clauses. of my mouth. The Ukraine. I'm, yeah, I'm, no, I'm you're sorry. right. I got me. Hey, listen, Let me tell you, I don't Ukrainian. apologize because I've never said the Ukraine. I know. And I'm not sure. The way I remember it, I've only that, heard Max that, say it. Max just said, "Is it the Ukraine or Ukraine?" Yeah, no, I remember that when it was when it was the Ukraine, but that was like centuries ago. You know, it's its own country. And I'll tell you, 
Ukrainian people, like Lori's half Ukrainian, and I went up there for her mom's funeral, and then about a year later for her uncle's funeral up in the mountains there of uh, central Pennsylvania, mining country, and uh, they are very, there is definitely, they don't consider themselves Russian by any means. They don't like the Russians. And uh, if you look, Timmy was talking about the history. As recently as the Second World War, the Ukrainians, before the Second World War, one of the main victims of the psychopath Stalin was Ukraine during the farm collectivization. That was what I was going to talk about, yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, and they raised an army to help the Germans because this guy was such a, you know, well, I mean, Joe Stalin, you know, he's, it's a toss-up, who's worse, him or Hitler, you know, but. If uh, if you read about, if you read about how that happened, they had their, they had these gangs of, of, of peasants. First, they killed all the cats and dogs, so that, because you couldn't eat them. Then they would go and they would raid these Ukrainian farmers, the, the successful farmers whose stocks kulaks. take take all their kulaks. yeah kulaks, take all their food, and if they were still alive a week later, they would come back and say, "How are you still alive? What are you eating that you haven't given us?" I mean, it was this level of deprivation on millions and millions of, of people's scale. That's just horrible. And when you read that stuff, your blood boils, and you're like, "Ah, we could probably send in some airborne and stop that," but. We know the. We know it just doesn't work that way. Just like your blood boils when you read about what the Turks did to the Armenians. But I'm sure that there was a thing where the Armenians did to the Turks the same. I just haven't read that yet. But man, what a tragic fucking cycle. And those people have some deep-seated hatreds. I mean, like serious hate, not this pretend hate like we have over here, where you gotta, you know, you've got to make, a, you got to go shop around for a hate crime around here. You got to make up your own. But but not there. They got serious hatred that that that's based off of some horrible horrible inhuman treatment that was just within living memory. Yeah, well, and, and one of the great mistakes Hitler, uh, in retrospect, right? Right. Absolutely. Right? The Germans roll into the Ukraine, and yeah. they're having parades, right? Kiev and, yeah, and, and throwing throwing flowers in front, and and it looked like the American army going into Paris. And then what do they what do they start doing? They start massacring people and turn the whole population against them. Um, amazing, amazing. Okay, I want to before Will's got to go because he's got to catch a flight. But before I want to do some Guadalcanal trivia. Okay. Okay. All right, everybody, everybody ready? Ready, ready. Yes. All right. Division. Uh, we'll start with the easy stuff. Division commander. First Marine Division was Vandergrift. Will won that. Quick quick response. Ding, ding, ding. Assistant Division Commander was? Rupertus. Oh. Rupertus. Ooh. Well, how do you Who know that? became Division Commander. How do you, how, okay. Assistant okay. Chief of Staff. Who was the, uh, who was the G2? Uh, Getchy. Oh. Yeah, Getchy. Getchy Patrol. Yeah, he, was killed, oh. like that. Yeah. he was killed uh, in the Getchy Patrol shortly right. after, in August still. Uh, they thought that a bunch of Japanese wanted to surrender because they were starving. It was wrong. Because <laughs> they saw a white flag. They just missed the meatball on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Who, uh, CO of the 1st Marine Resume, Regiment is? That was uh, Kate. Clifton Kate. Clifton Kate. Correct. CO of the 5th Marine Regiment when they started was? That was uh, when they started. Um, I don't remember. I know Edson ended up being a right. right. Uh, Leroy. I want to say West. Leroy P. Hunt, who was relieved by Hunt. Hunt. by Vandegrift right. for poor yeah. performance. Edson takes over. Yeah. All right. Very very good. All right. So far so good. Um, 
Seventh Marine Regiment. Who's Frisbee? Who's Frisbee? No. Okay, Sims then. No. James James Webb, who's also two of the (laughs) three regimental commanders when they go ashore are relieved for performance on Guadalcanal. Colonel Armour Sims takes over. Sims, yeah. See, I knew Sims was in there somewhere, but I didn't... And, um, they kept that relieving shit pretty quiet. Like it never made the press. He's got a little bit of a Hitler mustache in this picture, which is odd because I didn't think that was that was that much of a fashion trend. Um, and then he serves as the Nafok chief of police from 1949 to 1952. Somehow, yeah. So Sims. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think who else. Who is the commanding officer of the 11th Marine Regiment? Pedro Duval. Yeah. Pedro Duval. And these are what is later known in Marine Corps history as the Coconut Grove Boys. Chessie Puller, one of the battalion commanders. Uh, in the, Barrett Edson was a battalion commander. Yeah, in the 7th Marine Regiment. Um, now, let me ask you. I was watching a little uh, a little documentary about Guadalcanal yesterday, last night. Uh, Merritt Edson is 1st Raider Battalion. Right. So, why um, the significance when you look at a map of the Battle of Guadalcanal, okay, um, the significance of Bloody Ridge is what? Why would the Japanese... It it, it, was over the airfield. So it dominated the airfield. Dominated the airfield. That's why they fight over Bloody Ridge. Right, right. Got it. All right, give me your best little-known fact or a fact that you um, love about the Guadalcanal campaign. Oh, so many. Well, here's a here's a piece. The uh, welterweight champion of the world in, ni- in up to 1940 was a guy named um, uh, well, that was uh, Henry Armstrong, who's like a human windmill uh, fighter. But the guy who he beat was uh, oh. Uh, Oh, God damn it. <laughs> oh, I'm forgetting now. I'm having a brain fart. But anyway, uh, oh, geez. Damn it. He's a Jewish guy with a with a non-Jewish name. What the hell is his name? God damn. I, now I'm embarrassed. Um, anyway, that's one piece of trivia. Uh, another one is um, <laughs> interesting trivia. Um, huh? Oh. Anyway, go, move on. To somebody else, I failed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Timmy, I got an easy one because I don't have a gift. I don't have the memory of Jeff, but You're I do lucky. know that the, the the first the first Marine Division when they landed on there, they landed on 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 Guadalcanal with 1903 Springfields, and they didn't get their hands on M1 till they stole them from the Army before they got back on ships. And I just like some of the. Uh, some of the the, the the first person narratives about these raids they would make on the army to acquire M1 uh, rifles and shotguns, which the army had in abundance. I, I like that part of it. I, I always like thieving from the army stories. It's to me, it's it's why we're we're special. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Got it. Will a little I, known or fact that you love about the Guadalcanal campaign? So the the one of the things that I love about the Guadalcanal campaign is you fast forward all the way to Afghanistan and whatever, when we went in there and uh, 
Test Force 51, whatever it was, took the airfield. 50. And so what what should the name of the airfield in Afghanistan been when we Anderson went in there? Henderson Field. Field. Not, not, not Guadalcanal. What it, should it have been? Henderson have been Field. Henderson Field or Cactus. Right, one or yeah. the other. And we missed a huge opportunity. Uh, that 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 idea of the Cactus Air Force and when you uh, when you read what the conditions that they had and how they I mean, they basically had no food, so they were trying to conserve certain food that had nutrients in it to give to the pilots. And uh, the pilots were flying, uh, you know, shorty, a couple of shorties every day, and you'd have four F-4s go against a flight of 30 Japanese airplanes. Right. Um, and and basically, uh, we were wearing Bar- pilots. Barney Ross, like, I remember the name. <laughs> go ahead. Sorry, Will. I think uh, Joe Foss talked about, Medal of Honor recipient, talked about a pilot was either dead or worn out, and I, I think he said six weeks. Yeah, uh, he shot down 26 Japanese planes. Yeah, so uh, the whole idea of the Cactus Air Force. Uh, and then later, uh, just he a was great the governor thing. of governor North or South Dakota. Which one, Mac, you know? Uh, uh, North Dakota. Yeah, let me tell you, I want to say it was the 64th Infantry Division, and it was from North Dakota. I'm in North Dakota, and I meet some of these guys, and they're like, yeah, we pulled your ass out of the fire in Guadalcanal. And I say, what the fuck did you just say? Like, yeah, we went. We, I'm like, oh, fuck no, boys. Like, I don't know how this story got what it got, but but then you yeah, know, they, then they then they would tell you, no, we, we were the we were the uh, – division or regiment that came ashore to you know we were the first troops ashore after the navy reasserted itself yeah, I'll they tell you were... what, that to me is another the titanic naval fights that took place oh yeah, uh, hey, yeah. so so here's one for you mac big the, navy, uh, big navy holy the, shit uh, the naval academy linkedin page put something out on december 7th about in memorial hall basically every uh, anyone who's attended the Naval Academy that gets killed on active duty, your name goes into Memorial Hall. So on December 7th, December 7th, 1941, was the day of the biggest number of entries into Memorial Hall. But it just made me scroll through, and they've got, you know, how many people were put in on any given day during the years. And I think the second biggest day was in, like, September of... 1941, that the naval battle uh, where oh, we lost the four started. cruisers and all that, and it's an it's right. it's uh, I forget how many guys died at on, at Pearl Harbor, but a significant number of Naval Academy graduates from ensigns to rear admirals. Right, but I think two, that that two that, admirals Callahan Callahan and Scott, right? Yeah, and so that was I think I think that that naval battle around Guadalcanal was maybe the second biggest day that I saw, and maybe the third biggest day that I saw, and I didn't go through all of them, was 9-11. Um, oh, no right. shit. So, uh, you know, I saw one interview, just real quick, Jeff, with a sailor, and he said, we had 14, 14 inch rounds go through our bridge on the USS whatever. Completely yeah, obliterated the superstructure. The ship continued to function, and you're just thinking, holy shit, man. 
holy, uh, you, you know, when the United States Navy was as tough as it got, right? Mm-hmm. Tough as it got. If you can even imagine that, 14-inch yeah, 14, 14 shells yeah. hitting your, your bridge. Can you imagine? Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know, that battalion you're talking, that's a battalion, National Guard battalion, the 1st Battalion, 64th Infantry. And they went into Guadalcanal in September, to, and they, they integrated them with uh, 1-7, Chesty Polar Battalion. And um, Timmy talked about the, a lot of these guys got became casualties, and the Marines inherited, air quotes, their, their M1 Garand. <laughs> but uh, after Chesty Polar's guys fought, like, basically after 1-7 and 2-7 fought off the Japanese up on that ridge, the incidents where, where uh, Mitchell Page... And, and John Blasselon got the Medal of Honor for basically being machine gun platoon sergeants and mowing down, you know, uh, you know, a significant number of Japanese troops. And the, but the day after that, or a couple of days after that, the Army guys showed up and they integrated them in in the holes in the line of the unit. So in a way, they got they have a they can say that, you know, and I'm and I'm pretty sure it was the first of the 64th. But it might not have been. It might have been the second or whatever. Hey, you know, the other thing. Where, where, guy, where did Basilone? Where did Bazalone, um Where was his action? Where he where he was awarded the medal? He was on the ridge. He was on the, the ridge. ridge. Yeah. Got it. He was uh, trying to defend the ridge. Well, wait because a minute. Japanese. Then there, here's a little known fact about Bazalone's Medal of Honor. How long did it take to process? And who was the final awarding authority? I think it took like weeks because they got he got it in Australia. When they yeah, got it, back it, before, it took a little bit less years. than three months. And yeah. who? Who was the final arbiter that signed off on it? Uh, I think Vandegrift. Maybe no, no. no it was Hall. Gormley. 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 Gormley before he got replaced by. Uh, so a three-star admiral at that huh. point, in less than ninety <laughs> days, approved a medal of honor. Holy shit! I'll be damned. Yeah. And well, I, no, I only I, know that here. You know, the factoid is in one of the National Defense uh, Authorization bills. Of the early 2000s, uh, the DOD was tasked to look at all the Distinguished Service Cross, Navy Cross recipients from World War II to the present who are of Hispanic or Jewish heritage to see if they have been discriminated against and got the Navy Cross, Distinguished Service Cross, instead of Medal of Honor. So there was a, a corporal who happened to be Jewish, Marine, who was Navy Cross recipient in the same action as Bazelon. Yeah, and we gosh, reviewed man. that, and I had all the, uh, I had all the documents on Bazelon's uh, Medal of Honor at that time, and uh, and uh, this guy had been a pre-war Marine uh, corporal. There's, you know, I mean, my vision of how that whole thing went down is, uh, uh, Vandegrift goes up on the hill, sees Edson, sees a double, you know, ration of dead Japanese everywhere says we need to do some awards. You know, Bazelon, pre-war Marine, uh, Medal of Honor, Page. Uh, who's that guy over there? Corporal? Yeah. Maybe, you know, I got a feeling yeah. that's how they did it. Um, how else could they have done it? Yeah, well, they sure didn't do it the way we did it. You know, oh, yeah. two years later, 17 investigations yeah, no shit. Uh, and some assistant secretary of defense. Well, I ate. Well, okay, so really hold on. do that? What, in the movie, is, isn't there a movie, Guadalcanal Diary? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, but they don't, I, thought, yeah. I thought they portrayed Bazalone by the Tenaru River in that movie. No. 
No, 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 no. No, that was uh, that movie was made by a guy, Rich, uh, from a story by a guy named Richard Tregeskis, who left Guadalcanal, I think, before those big ridge, those big uh, bloody ridge fights, uh, or or around the same time, because the Teneru was the first time the Japanese came at the Marines in the defense in force, and the approach they used was basically hugging the sea, you know, the shoreline. And they came across what they originally thought was the Teneru River. Really, it was a creek attached to the ILU River, the Yule River. And they came at uh, battalions from the 1st Marine Regiment. And that's where um, uh, the uh, that's where Al Schmidt, who's from Philly, uh, got the Navy Cross doing basically what, uh, what John Bastone did. He was blinded. And uh, uh, he uh, but they gave him the Navy Cross and uh, they made a movie called Pride of the Marines with uh, John Garfield playing him before, before I think the movie came out like in 1943, 44 and around the same time as the movie Guadalcanal Diary, which was about the beginning part of the Guadalcanal campaign. I mean, that movie had like, it had Anthony Quinn in it. It had, uh, you know, the, the Guadalcanal Diary. It had, uh, you know, a lot of uh, actors who later became, you know, famous, but uh, yeah, that was a, that, they made that pretty quick. You know, I mean, Guadalcanal was like, no one could believe, that we won i don't think you know i mean between and really the navy is you know we really dove deep into the uh wild canal thing with our discussions based on tolls and hornfisher's books but uh you know you still can't that was a desperate thing and made exacerbated by the lack of supply you know that uh, it really did that but i have to tell you this guy who i was gonna say um you know uh he was uh, the welterweight champion of the world and um he uh you know, he, he won the Silver Star in Guadalcanal. He was he was in the later part. Like, the Army took over after the 1st Marine Division left. And he was part of the 8th Marines. And he gunned down, like, 22 Japanese uh, trying to defend two wounded guys in a shell hole. You know, and uh, so it was Barney Ross was his name. And he's from Chicago. And uh, later he became, uh, he got hooked on morphine. He became a uh, an addict. And they made a movie about him called uh, Monkey on My Back about him. Being a hero in Guadalcanal and then getting hooked on morphine, then becoming a heroin addict and then beating it like in the late 40s. But, yeah. There you go. Everything you ever wanted to know about Guadalcanal. Oh. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and there, and there Hollywood. is a, there's a Bazalone Memorial Foundation, by the way, I just found on yeah. the internet. That's cool. I don't know what they do, but that's, that's they interesting. Do, I think they do they do Bazalone Day every day and. uh what is it? Raritan, New Jersey. Every yeah. every year. Every year. Yeah, like, they got a five K. They got a five K race. They raise yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. There and you go. Not, he lives on. In Pennsylvania, right uh, in my in my recruiting area for my RS, the town of Charleroi, I mean, they still they thought Mitchell Mitchell Page, there's pictures of them all over the place. You go in there, you know, Page Field and all this stuff. Mitchell Page, you got the Mel Honor in a similar action. I think it was the same night or like the night before the night after he was in two seven. Um, but yeah, in Pennsylvania, Western PA, they're all over that guy. Same thing with Mike Strank. He's from, uh, Johnstown and, uh, same thing with, uh, with him, you know, they, they venerate him. Hey, let me ask you guys a question. If you, uh, did, I'm looking at pictures of general officers. Did we not PT, uh, during the second, before the Second World War, did you PT beyond There's the age? There's some lard asses, man. Oh. You know where they did their PT? In the bars. 
No, they did their PT at Bellawood, you know, the Marne, uh, yeah. Chateau Thierry. That's where they did their When PT did the Marine Corps physical youth. fitness test even begin? <laughs> Anybody know? 50s? Well, the physical fitness test we got now, now started in the uh, early 70s. But before that... What did we do? Had the PRT, which was all... Yeah. Which we did in OCS. Which I think they still do in OCS. But that used to be the only physical fitness test. And I have to tell you, I don't know when that started. That's kind of an yeah. interesting question, don't you think? The history of the Marine Corps physical fitness test. When did we... Oh, early forms of the modern PFT began in 1972. How about that, Jeffrey? Yeah. For my, uh, that's what I'm saying. I told you my buddy. Hey, hold on. Listen to this, though. This is what this is the best part of it. For males, 46 years of age and younger. So the older dude said, yeah, you young fucks can do that. We don't. They said we did our, yeah, they said we did our PT <laughs> at the Chosen Reservoir. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you shitheads, you could do it. But, sir, you're an air winger. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> Uh, how funny. That's awesome. 1972. I mean, because let me tell you, Hal and Mad Smith, did he ever run a PFT? Yeah, I don't think so. No. No. Like I said, well, he, he ran his in Nicaragua. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> we had General Cushman when I first came in the Marine Corps, and he was a fucking food blister, man. And, uh, you know, and uh, after I was in boot camp for a week, and we got General Wilson, and he looked like, you know, Abraham Lincoln. You know, he was a tall gangly guy you know who uh they call him one lung louie because apparently <laughs> when he got wounded went in the medal of honor part of his lung was taken out but, uh, yeah. yeah but i mean you look at guys like chester nimitz he was a pretty lean dude right yeah. uh mm -hmm. let's see kelly turner big guy in the pacific right he's pretty yeah. lean guy Spruant, skinny fucker mccain yeah. a skinny fucker but yeah, because Edson, yeah. he's a little bit of a chunky monkey, all right? Merritt, Merritt Edson, he was a little bit of a chunky monkey. No, not, no, not when he was, not not till later, man. Not when he was a glock. No, the he picture, was, I'm, he, hey, he the picture I'm looking at, the, I mean, he doesn't look What's like he's missing any meals. I don't know. He's got two stars, Major General. Yeah. Well, well, you know how Patton worked out, right? Oh. You know how Patton got his exercise was by riding horses, just the same as uh, the same as Ulysses S. Grant, for that matter. Can well, you? But Patton, Patton was in the Olympics, 1912. Oh, that's true. He was in the pentathlon. Yeah, that's true. He, All right, let me ask you one more. Was, let me let me ask you one more trivia question. How the fuck did they keep these ribbons straight on their uniform? They didn't they have enough of them. Man. Why can't you accept that fact? What's that? They were better than us. <laughs> they were better. Than us. <laughs> They had their wives did all their sewing. They had to sew that shit up. Is that how they did it? They had to sew them on? Some of them, in the early, they look at them, they look like they're sewn on, man. They're not, like, clipped on. Yeah, who is this? I'm looking at General Vandegrift, and his shit looks pretty straight. I've seen pictures yeah. of General Puller. Like, I don't know who his tailor was. If, that, if, his, if his wife was doing it, I think she had a little bit of a visual problem. And the other thing I'm looking, I'm looking at a whole bunch of admirals with their stars on, and everybody takes a little bit different approach to how their stars go on their collar. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, funny. problem I'll never have. <laughs> so it's kind, of, it's kind of funny, you know? And yeah. again, I always laugh, like, how we come out of World War II saying, 
like we shave our heads in everybody's uniform when nobody wears the uniform the same way is hilarious to me. Hilarious. All right. Last, uh, I know we could wait till Thursday, but what are you reading now? Will, what are you reading on your, uh, on your big trip? Uh, actually, I just subscribed to uh, a thing called City Journal. I think it's put out by Manhattan Institute, and uh, it's like a conservative think tank kind of a thing. And it's a hardcover magazine, and uh, I finished reading it uh, on the way out here. Uh, you know, it's got seven, eight, nine, ten articles. It's really good writing. Uh, one of the articles struck me was about uh, COVID reaction in the UK. And uh, we never got to worry about the British invading anything ever again. <laughs> they've, they've really, they, it, I think the title of the article was like the most scared country. Um, there's articles about that. There's an article about uh, uh, basically a mob war in Boston in the 60s. And so just a, it's a great publication. And I don't know how I got turned on to it. I think I read an article somewhere else online and, Checked it out. City Journal. It's probably 35, 40 bucks a year. They put one out probably once a month or eight times a year. Just really good writing uh, and uh, provocative, you know, very topical. So that's what I was reading. I, I started to read the book Rigged by Molly Hemingway. You know, it's about the 2020 election. All right. It's, it's it, after reading Victor Davis Hansen's book, you know, The Dying Citizen. Uh, you get very depressed, and then Molly Hemingway just threatens to throw you right into the abyss. So I had to take a break from it. That a boy. Where you don't li like, you need more help being jaundiced. Uh, Tim, what do you uh, what are you reading? Well, I have finished. Uh, as a matter of fact, just last night that uh, that book on the Comanche Empire, and um, and I got to tell you, I, I've read four or five books on the Comanches, and this book uh, surpasses them by far. And it addresses the the main time when the Comanches and Americans were were feuding with each other, from the 1840s to the 18 about 1880 actually. That that in in this book the Comanche Empire has already already peaked and is dying off by then. We we were battling the remnants of the Comanches uh, by by this history. And I and I've gone through the bibliography, and it's just this guy has torn through archives from Mexico City, all kinds of Mexico, as well as individual letters out of these libraries that are that are located at the University of Texas. And, and it's amazing the information that he's dug up, but it's completely changed my perspective. I'll give you one example. You know, when I first mentioned the Comanches, you said, yeah, but they weren't like the Sioux. The Sioux were the badass. How, how does a Sioux warrior keep a damn horse alive when he's living in Dakota in the winter and a teepee? Yeah, it's it's little stuff like that I didn't think of. And what actually broke the Comanche's dominance was a ten year drought. A ten year drought and and over overgrazing on the on the range. But I I'm just I I was I love reading books that make me think about things I never thought about, like how do people live in Mont Montana and in North Dakota with horses and no barns? And the answer is they didn't. They had they to come didn't. by and get yeah. they had to get no, they, they had to come down get horses every year. Yeah. Yeah. No, they the, had to get they had the to tribe, restock. The tribe migrated to milder weather and then they so they had winter lodging. Oh no 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 lodging. they did not. No, 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 no. Are they you they sure? would go to milder weather. Oh, I'm sure. Because if they went to where it was really mild, that was in the Com Comanche's home range. And nobody got to do that. And I didn't realize that 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 the uh 
who was it? Those damn, the richest people in America in the 1920s were the, what the hell was the name of that damn tribe? The Osage. The Osages, I, I hadn't heard much of them. They gave the Comanches fit 50 years of warring with those bastards. They finally made a treaty with them because they couldn't get, they couldn't beat them. But um, I, I, it's it's an interesting reading. What's that? Rich in the 20s. Oh, they uh, the 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 reservation was on oil land. They were the richest. There's a uh, the killers of the summer moon is about the Osage's murder spree stopped by a nascent FBI who had to hire contract gunmen from Texas because their agents kept shooting themselves trying trying to arrest people. It's hysterical. <laughs> that's a, but that's yeah. a continuing theme with the FBI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the FBI made its money. The first case of prominence it had was protecting the Osage from, uh, oh, from, really? from, uh, yeah, from, from their neighbors, their neighbors, their Anglo neighbors from Texas and Oklahoma. Yeah. So it was, I, I was interested. I finished the book. I have not, I, I'm still going through the notes trying to figure out what the hell I'm going to do next, but I'm all, I'm, I'm all interested in, in this, uh, this, this new approach that, that, uh, incorporates a hell of a lot more research than, than T.R. Fehrenbach, who is dismissed with the wave of the hand by the author, just dismissed. Yeah, these guys focused on the deprivations because because this guy doesn't tell you what happens during the deprivations like T.R. Fehrenbach does. There's no detail about the amount of hideous bullshit that was going on. But then again, that's uh, that that wasn't his point. He was trying to frame an argument, basically, that these were an imperial powers um, that had all the uh, the hallmarks of an imperial power minus the written legacy. Yeah, and never and never figured out the wheel. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> Jeff, oh yeah, oh. Jeffrey, what are you reading? I picked up, re-picked up, and started reading again the book by Alex Marlowe called "Breaking the News." Alex Marlowe is the the chief of Breitbart News, and uh, basically talks about the corruption of the news in the last twenty years. Um, it's pretty good, you know. It's very interesting and uh, kind of infuriating too, you know, because without a good, without at least a semi-honest press, there's no way a representative form of government can really work, and so. Uh, we're just going to have issues, and and it's amazing in our history how much corrupt news there was. I mean, from the very beginning, the stuff they'd say, like people who like who liked Jefferson but didn't like Adams, the horrible stuff they just make up out of thin air about either guy. Um, but you know, there's always somebody that you could turn to, and uh, that's getting less and less now. You know, I mean, uh, and basically, Hearst is the one who you know supposedly started the Spanish American War. Uh, with his, uh, you know, with his uh, newspaper, and uh, you know, this just goes on and out with the with the rise of electronic and the ubiquitous media that's on, you know, everywhere on your phone and your TV, everywhere that uh, you know, it's uh, it's an issue. So, you know, I'm reading about um, Leo T. Hermley, known as Dutch, well, yeah. Major General of the United Dutch. States Marine Corps, known as Dutch, born in Hastings, Nebraska. Um, attended the University of California and then Hastings School of Law in San Francisco where he became a lawyer, right? He goes on active duty, assigned to the 74th Company of the 1st Battalion, 6th Marine Regiment, and was sent to France. That's what we do with lawyers. 1-6, hard. 1-6, hard. 1-6, hard. hard. So he fights, he fights in all the battles, right? He comes back. He stays in Germany for a while. He goes to Mare Island, right? He then goes to uh, to D.C. As, and they're like, hey, let's use him as a lawyer. 
few years later, they say, hey, let's not. Let's send him out to sea duty. He goes, he goes to the USS Seattle, goes back to uh, the basic school in its earliest form. Then he goes to Haiti. Right? Then he comes back to headquarters Marine Corps, goes to the War College, and then he's a, he's the CEO of eight Marines. Then they make him the CEO of six Marines. He's in Iceland before the war starts. Then he goes then he goes with the Second Marine Division to the Pacific in 1942, participates at the end of Guadalcanal, stays with Second Marine Di- Division. They do Tarawa. He he gets ashore as the assistant division commander. He can't get the Schaup. So he's doing different things. And uh, then uh, he stays there. He goes to be uh, General Smith's assistant at 5th Amphibious Corps. And then they say, now you need to go back and help General Rocky with 5th Marine Division. 5th Marine Division then goes to Camp Tarawa in Hawaii. And then they go to Iwo Jima. So he's involved in Iwo Jima. I mean, it's one of those guys that's like he's everywhere, man. And then he retires in La Jolla and hangs out, becomes a law professor, and dies in 1976. What a fucking life, man. What a life. Right? Dutch Hermley, H-E-R-M-L-E. And he got punched out by uh, uh by Barney Ross in Guadalcanal. Navy Cross, Distinguished (laughs) Service Cross, Distinguished Service Medal, Silver Star Times Two. Legion of Merit, Bronze Star, Purple Heart, with the with with some kind of cluster on it. So, I mean, what the hell, man? What the hell? All right, all right, boys. First of all, on a Sunday, I appreciate y'all hopping on and doing this. Have a great day, and we'll talk later in the week. Sounds good, Matt. See you guys later. Later. See you guys.